Hello, um, welcome to the uh, Free Rohingya Coalition um, Genocide Podcast um, Series. Um, today, um, I will be um, talking to a very dear colleague and friend, uh, Chan Yuk, or we call him uh, Yuk. Um, he is the um, director, executive director of the uh, Documentation Center of Cambodia. Um, it is the Kimia research and documentation um, institution working on Kamarush genocide. Uh, the York has been uh, the director and a key player um, for the center for the last 25 years, at least since 1995. And the documentation center is a pillar uh, of the Kamarush Tribunal, the hybrid UN and Cambodian government run um, tribunal on the Pol Pot regime's atrocities that took place uh, 40 years ago. Uh, the, he uh, himself um, lived under Khmer Rouge and escaped the killing fields, um, lost um, you know, family members um, in the Cambodian genocide, and the, the Khmer Rouge tribunal has officially um, declared that um, the atrocities that Cambodian people um, the suffer uh, some 40 years ago were indeed um, um, the crime of genocide as well as uh, crimes against humanity. Um, York is a, a very um, internationally respected figure, um, has a long um, and illustrative history of contributing to the genocide um, study field as well as um, promotion of um, awareness about um, contemporary genocides um, around the world, including uh, my own country's genocide against the uh, Rohingya Muslim people. And I am uh, extremely um, the pleased and honored um, to have a chance to uh, interview um, with Yok Chan. And I also am a part of um, his team um, at the um, Cambodian Genocide Center and they're working primarily on the uh, Burmese um, contemporary genocide. And so, York, uh, brother, let me just uh, um, ask you um, to walk us through your personal life stories that contributed to your commitment uh, making, um, you know, the genocide uh, essentially history in Southeast Asia and other places. Obviously, people like yourself and, my, and myself who work as activists, scholars, or campaigners, or educators, um, that we have a long way to go. But nonetheless, your efforts are recognized worldwide. Um, you were named one of the um, you know, at the, the top of 60 influential people in Asia. Um, and also you have been awarded, um, you know, many uh, honors from around the world. And so just tell the listener your own life story and how that plays in your professional work and life. Thank you, Zadi, for the opportunity to share my personal experience. Um, to be honest, um, I came to this work uh, seeking revenge, uh, you know, anger. It's not that because I 
the experts, so I care for humanity or others. Yeah, because it was very angry. Um, I was 14 uh, when the communists came to the country and I quickly was separated from my own family until actually today. Uh, you know, we, I hardly live with my mom. She's now 93 years old. And I lost sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins. It's, it, it's easy for me to count those who live, but those who die, just too many to count. And sometimes in our family, we refuse to count those who have passed away under the hand of the Khmer Rouge because it's too difficult uh, um, to take it. So I came in that because, um, like I said, uh, I was very angry. Uh, and doing this not even for me, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's for my mothers who witnessed uh, the loss of all her brothers and sisters, her husbands, her parents, um, her cousins, uh, aunt and nephew. She actually is the only person, the only surviving member of her own family. And I, I, I personally was arrested, put in prison, tortured, and starved. But for some reason, anger helped me to survive. You know, I, I refused to die. I refused to um, to to knees. I refused to um, that because I feel it's so injustice. I have done nothing wrong. Uh, I I never harmed anybody. Uh, never been corrupted. Uh, I was fourteen. You know, basically, I was fourteen years old. So this, it's, it's the love of, of my mother bring me to where I am today. I want to be someone that no longer to be called as a victim. I want to be someone that my mother can be proud of. I want to, I want Kamaru to see that I'm growing, that I'm prosperous. Yes, all of us, no one's, it's a, uh, 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 happy or wanted to live in, in the past of the Khmer Rouge. I think that somehow I want to be opposite to the Khmer Rouge. So to what they did to us, I want to do the opposite. That's how I, I take it uh, since I start the works. Uh, but at the same time, I realized that, you know, my mom is not the only person in the whole country who suffer. There are many mothers, 100,000 children with their parents. And so I learned each, each steps, each days, each process I've learned. I learned something new. I, I look at people in Burma, I look at people in North Korea, I look at people in Iraq, Bosnia, Africa. So I think that the work actually touched me. Uh, and grow me to who I am today. So I really um, um, appreciate the opportunity. So I have, I have, uh, I have, I began to understand that that um, that genocide never stops, crime never stops, and if we stop, then we lose. If we continue to to be called victim, then we lose to the perpetrator who are now living around us everywhere in the whole world.
So I think that we have to keep fighting, keep fighting. And each day uh, you can make one little progress, save one life, say something about what happened. I can see there's a happy day. So that's what I'm doing now at, in Cambodia. And I, I, uh, I can understand how things are evolving around the world. And I think that, that, that because we remains prejudice, we remains uh, bl being blind, and we have not learned from the past. And we, we quickly forget things that happenings around us. And uh, we don't believe in the warning signs, for example. And I just wonder why. And, you know, so that's why I also work with a lot of scholars. I listen to a lot of peoples because we seem to make the same mistakes uh, in the last 70 years. Since the genocide convention signed into law. Uh, we keep saying this, but what? So far since 1948, maybe three genocide been convicted. Uh, we, I think that we have to be honest to ourselves and discover that all these crimes actually are happening because we, we have not changed. We have not accepted the facts that it was us or part of us that created this monster, destroy our old family and friends around the world. So these thinkings, it's, uh, the thinking is not from books, or from school, but from people I met, particularly common people in the village who inspire me. Uh, speaking to people like, like yourselves, like others who suffer the same crime but in different part of the world. So that become part of me, become part of my knowledge and to do things better for Cambodia. So you, you were raised uh, um, in a, you know, Buddhist context, uh, you know, Buddhist society, um, in a Buddhist family. Um, you know, I, I am not addressing Buddhism here as a religious faith, but as a, you know, as a system of ideas. Um, because uh, you know, as you know, um, the practicing uh, Buddhist do not approach Buddhism as a, um, you know a devotional faith, uh, but you know paradigm or philosophy that should guide us through life without having to surrender our um, you know reasoning or rational judgment. How do you see? that Buddhist philosophy, the culture, um, play in the way you cope with the losses that you mentioned. And also like, you know, the fact that you, you know, that uh, you work with um, one of the gravest and darkest human or social phenomena, uh, the atrocity, crimes and genocide. How do you, how do you, how do you, how do you think um, uh, the B Buddhism has helped, if any, um, with your work in life? Well, I, for me, I think that it's how my mother's, um, you know, show her gratitude to Buddhism. 
not necessarily how I use Buddhism to cope with what happened to me in the last 40 years. And I also work with Islam groups and a Catholic group, for example, and the religion. Um, I think because I grew up more or less of uh, too young to really get into this uh, religious sort of belief. You know, after the Khmer Rouge, uh, you know, Cambodian continued to suffer through civil war, for example. And only in 1998 that Cambodia realized peace. And that where the pagoda and churches and mosques began to be. But by then, you know, I'm already 32 years old. So I'm a bit of a distant from religious, but yet, because my mom is like a devoted um, is, uh, to Buddhism, so I, I look at her, how, how she lived her life, for example. Uh, but sometimes it divides us. Uh, for example, one of my um, sisters was killed brutally because the Khmer were accusing her of stealing, uh, eating stolen cucumber. So they cut her stomach open and she died. Um, my little nieces, age of six, witnessed the killing. Uh, they also killed my brother-in-laws and two of my other nieces and nephews. So one survived and escaped and now living in America. My mother who lived in the same village also aware of the incidents of the killing of her own daughter. I was in a mobile team away from the village, but I knew what happened. So at one point, I, um, I asked her, um, she asked me why, why I, I worked so hard for the tribunal. I, I told her, you know, at least bring some justice to my sister, to your daughter. You know what? She told me that when I left, when I was far away from her, uh, after the Khmer Rouge, the person who killed my sister came and looked for my mother and actually brought bananas, flower, lotus, and asked for forgiveness. And she forgave him a long time ago without asking me, without asking my niece, who's a daughter of, her, uh, of my sister, uh, without asking any permission. So she took the liberty and forgave him. How did and, you feel about it? Uh, I, I disagree with her. And my niece, who are now 42, refused to return to Cambodia. She left Cambodia in 79 because they think that this is unacceptable. But because my mother did this, you know, my mother did it, it melted my heart. It's, it made me think twice before I react or I question her position. Uh, and that's how I relate to Buddhism. I, I observe people who, who believe in it and how they cope with it and by uh, uh, using it to, uh, to move on with their life. For example, you know, um, when I was arrested, uh, I was tortured among the villagers in the village. And I was very angry at both the prison guard and my own mother because she didn't come out and ask the Khmeru or protect me. So I was brought out of the crowd and put in prison. 
35 years later, I decided to ask to confirm why she, why she didn't protect me then. Uh, because I start to write something, I want to clarify the facts. Uh, I want to make sure that uh, uh, this, is, this is what happened. And you know what? When I asked her um, six years ago, she was 89 years old. And she said she didn't come to the meeting. She was late. According to my research over the last 40 years, you cannot refuse to join any meeting called by the committee. But my, when my mother said she didn't come or she was late, I asked myself, should I ask her for the second question? She's now 89 years old. Should I bother her how I felt? You know, if Buddhism can comfort her, nowadays, Every holiday, we would pay the mom, five mom, just to come walk across the house because of COVID-19. The go that were locked down, say we have a lockdown. So I pay five mom just to walk past by the house so she could offer food to the Buddhist mom. Basically, I cheat her. But as long as she's happy to see Buddhist mom walk across the house so that she can offer food, I'll go for it. So her life is completely uh, devoted to Buddhism. And I learned from her. And I, 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 do not, I do not question her how she believes in it. But as long as she's happy, I accept it. So that's how I see Buddhism play into my, my life through my mother. And... Um... Can you tell us about the um, uh, the work uh, you've been doing, um, you know, since 1995, you know, uh, and even uh, the the before that? I, I you know I know that you went to the United States as a refugee, escaped the um, you know the, the most um, uh, brutal part of Kamala's history, which is um, you know uh, summarized in a, in this you know popular infamous phrase, "killing fields." And uh, can you tell us um, how you started working on the uh, documentation and human rights project? Uh, you know, having returned from USA to your native country in 1990, I believe. But you know, first thing that I came to my mind that we lost two million people. But yet we never mentioned that we have five million who survived to tell the story. People focus so much on the number of people who died. But, but I, it appeared to me no one focused those who survived, they're still around, in, around us. So I, I thought to myself that, you know, it's, it was very clear from beginning on day one that we want justice, that I want justice, that justice must be done. Uh, but how, how it's being done then would be the next question. But the whole purpose of the documentation in Central Cambodia is about justice. Even today, any projects, any work, we, we, we think about project, uh, we think about justice and how the, how the work, how what we do, what we collect that can serve the purpose of justice, even today. Even today. That remains the core objective of the Documentation Center of Cambodia. I think justice is very important for every human being, and without justice, I think that 
we would uh, repeatedly uh, destroy uh, the generation for our children for the next, for the next, for the next. So justice must be the core uh, principle of the center itself. So, um, you know, I, I was not like an historian or lawyers scholar. So I, I took a position as a son of my father who suffered and I want the answer. I want, I want the world to answer to my question why uh, they killed almost entirely, entirely my family member. So by doing that, I, 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 I put myself uh, to work with anybody, uh, scholars, historians, lawyers, including government officials, uh, plus the former community themselves. Not just only the victim side, but also the perpetrator side as well, because they want to hear a story from all sides, uh, whether they can answer to my question or not, of what happened to my family member. With that, you know, the training in the U.S., uh, I worked with Professor Ben Kenyon uh, uh, from, from Yale University on this project. So, you know, the trainings, uh, with, with education, so it's it's, it's, it, it helped me to put me in the in a less emotional position and uh, develops the ability to work with everyone, but yet for my own interests. It was a bit of a selfish approach, but I, uh, when I first started, like I told you, I came to this world not because I care about the world, I care about my own family. And that's, that's the, the main objective. It's of a hidden agenda or a selfish objective uh, of me when I came to this project. And I only share later, to be honest with you. So the first question that I work every day here, you know, why did they kill my sister? Why did they kill my uncle? Why my father got killed? Why did they kill my niece? Why did they kill my nephew? Because I know them so well. And I knew that they did nothing wrong to the society itself. So with that training, I also began to see how, uh, how, how my work would contribute to a court of law. You know, because when you talk about justice, you need a tribunal. So I began to visit you know, international tribunal. I began to speak to international prosecutors. I began to look at you know, <clears throat> the evidence, what, what would be called the evidence, you know, all these things. So it's just sort of like, the whole idea, I always uh, dream of a tribunal and yet respect of any court of law that would be established to deal with the crime committed by the criminal. But by having myself uh, to contribute some part of the justice process itself, that's sort of my, my, my objective. So with that, I began to collect information, to talk to people, to document the genesis. Anything that a lawyer would need uh, would shed a light of what happened that would bring about a process of justice. And um, you have um, a mask, I think, you know, the largest quantity of documentation pertaining to the Khmer Rouge regime, including meeting minutes and you know the uh, um, photographic evidence, 
transcripts and you know, all, I mean, all, all types of, um, you know, documents and documentation, uh, some admissible to court of law, some are not. Uh, can you tell us um, uh, the role that um, DC CAM or Democrat, sorry, a Documentation Center of Cambodia has played in both the setting up the uh, Khmer Rouge Tribunal, um, officially known as the Extraordinary Chambers of the um, uh, the Court of Cambodia, ECCC, um, and uh, the contributions you know, uh, that um, DC Chem has made uh, to the proceedings. I understand you you are open to providing any form of documents and evidence to any party, whether it's defense, uh, prosecution, or the uh, civil parties. You know, that, that will be an extremely educational um, uh, thing for the people to learn who are not familiar with the uh, DC CAM or Documentation Center Cambodia. Well, so far we have collected over a million of primary sources. Uh, we have collected not just only uh, original documents, but also photograph, document genus, um, crime size, mass grave, photograph, video, and anything that that took place during that time. Yeah. Can you can you first um, you know explain to the uh, listeners what uh, what is defined or considered primary sources or primary documents? Um, according to the uh, DC CAMS research. Because uh, we have a similar situation uh, with the Rohingya. The United Nations has established uh, um, uh, international independent, no, sorry, independent investigative mechanism or Myanmar, which I think is, you know, uh, the, the very similar to DC CAM, uh, the archiving of uh, the materials that can be used as evidence in, and also uh, you know, the providing case files to any future uh, you know, atrocity crimes tribunal uh, for, for Myanmar uh, genocide. We, uh, we actually um, uh, support a court of law but yet we don't depend on a tribunal to resolve everything for us. Uh, we keep it distant. We, I think that the court is very important, but it's not everything. Uh, that not, not to mention compensation, the loss of two million life, not to mention the reparation, not to mention a life of my sister that cannot be compensated, for example. But yet, why do I support the court of law? I think it's all about the future rather than for the victim themselves, but about the future. So I think that by, by saying that we as uh, those who were suffer by, uh, by the genocide have to sacrifice a lot uh, more uh, for others because the entire court process is not for us. It's nothing for us. And nothing would be fair. So uh, with, that, with that thinking, I'm not collecting the evidence because otherwise you submit yourself to a small group, a small process of lawyer, and you end up working for them. I don't work for lawyers, I work for people, I work for my mother. So the idea is to collect anything that that lawyer would need, but yet also can be used 
for other purpose. Uh, for example, uh, history education, for example, uh, remembrance, anything that also can bring a process of healing for a groups, a village, or a family aside. So with that, uh, with that uh, thinking, uh, we don't analyze any data we have collected, or we don't present it as evidence, but as information that can be used by anybody. And the information were categorized by five categories, because anything happened during the genocide, most of the pieces are circumstantial, that you have to put them together to explain certain things, and that's, that's something that lawyer would need immediately to, to op open up a case. So we basically paved the way to support uh, a court of law, but yet at the same time, we maintain our own agenda for us. And uh, while we need lawyers to do all the work for us, but yet they are, they are not, uh, they're not our boss. There's someone that also can bring, can help this narrow the gap of what happened. So at DC camp, there's a five category of document that we have collected. One is called documentation, refer all the paper documents. And secondly, uh, we call it um, physical information, refer to like location of prison, uh, torture instruments, uh, gravesite, etc. And third, we uh, call it um, interview, which refer to two uh, category of interview, one with, with the, those who suffer, one who commit the crime. And then fourth would be photograph, and, and five would be uh, video. But these have to be originally come from that regime. It's not something uh, written by a scholar or things like that. And that would consider as uh, secondary sources. And that would carry a little bit of, uh, not carry a strong wage even if you give uh, a case, a case file uh, to bring someone to the court of law. So we have this, when we say primary source, it's original from that regime itself that they develop. For example, like, minutes, uh, communications, like their publications, uh, the thing that they use to kill the victim, um, their old photograph, you know, for example, their old video tapes, things like that. And we are not only collecting material from inside Cambodia, but also outside Cambodia. Any communist regime have their own friends around the world and they communicate. And that is very important to see also how the material outside that reflect to their own, uh, their own action within their own country itself so that they help you understand better. And that itself, you know, for example, um, diplomatic communications, you know, the telegrams that they get, that their official visits, uh, that's their statement that they make publicly in those countries, uh, you know, the visit of their friends, things like that. So those uh, have to be like original, happen, uh, create or written uh, by the regime itself. That's because we refer to the primary source. Uh, one thing that is important that uh, I have this, I encounter this experience in Nepal, because sometimes people only want to speak to the victim, those who suffer, and that's good. But to bring a process of justice, you also must hear from the other side. 
and you must be able to access to them. But when you access to them as a perpetrator, then you block the information that can be used in the court of law. For example, I developed a project it's called Promoting Accountability, basically just to identify the official of the regime. You know, by the legal definition, even driver, even cooks, even uh, radio broadcaster, even artists that belong to the regime, they are the official. And that is very important to understand that they are not your target, but someone that can, can help you to understand about the chain of command and how the command responsibility that took place and failed to prevent the killing that may happen at the ground level. And that questionnaire to those people, it must be respected first, uh, they, they arrive because uh, they are part of the official, and secondly, you should not ask them to be self-incriminating. And that for us as a researcher or investigator must maintain a fair, uh, a balanced position to talk to people like that. Otherwise, then uh, it cannot be submissible, it could be uh, dismissed because you already took the prosecutor position. So I think the interview is very tricky and I think the most important part of the interview process is your questionnaire, and you might well train, both legal and historical. You don't need to know everything. You don't need the uh, most modern laptop computer. Uh, you don't need like, uh, you know, Zoom program. You need just a piece of paper and a pencil to do this. And I think that uh, it's, uh, Despite the crime may be huge, despite the loss of two million lives, that's all you need. That's all you need. And you must, you must, even though you, you, uh, you don't expect the court to resolve everything, but you must respect their position. You must respect the institution if you want to have a fair trial. And you must work with everybody. And that is difficult if you were a victim yourself. You know, knowing that in Sri Nunjia, for example, you have, you're holding so much thing, and sometimes you, you don't need to be a good lawyer, just even a lousy lawyer can tell that they commit crime already. But that you have to like well-trained, you have to think future, think further, and you cannot, you have to remind yourself, you are not judges, you are not court. Yeah, just sorry to interrupt, just for the listeners who may not be familiar with the Khmer Rouge leaders, Ian Saray was a foreign minister um, under Pol Pot, uh, who was the figurehead or the uh, brother number one. And Non Che uh, was brother number two, who just passed away uh, last year after having been um, committed, uh, sorry, uh, found guilty of both crimes against humanity and genocide. But his lawyers uh, would say that uh, uh, the appeal process uh, was not started or, or completed because the, um, the non-che brother number two died and so they would contest the um, the genocide um, you know uh, ruling and so but uh, at any rate um, uh, uh, York I, I want to return to something that is so crucial actually two things you talk about evidence and documentation or information you know that could constitute a circumstantial evidence in the um, you know uh, the international crime tribunal such as the Kamar Rouge tribunal um, the, uh, then you talk about um, 
uh, essentially, let, let me rephrase it. Um, you know, in 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 a court of law, um, especially the ones designed to handle the uh, genocide allegations, um, you know, the question of uh, the intent behind, um, uh, you know, what constitutes genocide becomes the paramount um, issue. And when, but you're saying based on your 25 years of, um, you know, experience, essentially working day in and day out, um, you know, documenting uh, different types of, uh, you know, information, uh, you know, not only for the court, but actually for a much, much wider uh, purposes, like education, you know, uh, providing a sense of justice, uh, memory, um, all that. What do you say to those who say who are looking for the smoking gun, if you will? You know, like the like the document, like the final solution that the Nazis uh, came up with. You know, to to establish Auschwitz and the uh, final phase of their ex mass extermination of the Jews and other victims in Nazi Germany. There is, was there was there any smoking gun? In, in your work that you came across that could be presented or that were presented at the Khmer Rouge Tribunal? You know, um, among these over one million cases that I have collected, we provide half a million to the tribunal. Um, I, I can even provide more. But what I'm saying is that, you know, it's, uh, you should undermine your circumstantial material. Because they are the smoking gun. If you're looking for a single piece of paper, I don't think that uh, would be would be impossible to qualify as a smoking gun because a regime was committed by groups of people, not by a person. You know, let's say Mr. A gave the order, but then carried by Mr. B, Mr. C, Mr. D, Mr. E, H, and G, for example. So I think looking for a smoking gun, it's. Uh, uh, I think that lawyer would look would like to look for it, but I think that it's uh, I think that maybe that they will to fool of themselves, which is which is not exist. Not exist. Exactly. Not exist. Uh, and circumstantial, it's it's I think itself it's uh, it's um, it's it of significance. And besides, you know, the evolution of international law, the technology, people have so much uh, knowledge to challenge things around. Uh, communication is very quick, very fast these days. So you have to catch up with the with the worlds of of, of, of knowledge of you know uh, in the court in the court of law. You you have to adopt a new way to look into this and uh, and more um, modernize it. For like I would say, you know, for example, um, in case of uh, the genocide in Cambodia. Um, I don't have to look at all the ethnic groups that were targeted by the Khmer Rouge. I look at two, at the most available materials. Or Who are they? The Cham, for example, the Cham. Cham and the uh, um, Vietnamese? The Vietnamese, for example. So, like I said, you don't need to know the whole things or say everything. But you look at things that is possible to prove. To prove that's what, happened, what took place. And for the intent, you look at the, there is no uh, 
there is one single, perhaps a few single document that out can, of one million, out of one million, that a prison guard, a prison chief, like order his subordinate uh, in one of the prison in the village to kill Mr. A, for example. But yet, it doesn't qualify uh, sufficient to point out to the higher up, right, uh, the superior. So you know, in that case, for example, uh, to prove the intent, you have to look at, you have to study the organization, the administration, and how all this little communication that uh, that you can compile them to show that you know to show, for example, the minutes, the communication, the letter, the photograph, uh, for example, the telegram, for example, the order to buy uh, to buy uh, you know toilet tissue. Uh, you can look at the 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 hamburger receipt, for example, when they travel. You can uh, look at the gasoline receipt, for example, things like that. Then you can prove the intent because you, those can track their travel to the site to meet someone, things like that. And those are circumstantial. And then also these are also accessible by common researchers or, um, or investigators because they can access in the uh, grocery shops, can, uh, in the coffee shops, things like that. So I think that um, since we are not lawyer, I think that uh, we should stick to uh, we should seek to understand how particular event took place and gather those information, explain to ourselves. And that's exactly what the lawyer would look for. And they are the one who bring about this material to be a piece of evidence later. So we cannot do it. And I think that those are something that I've been doing here. You know, here we collect events, uh, a pens, uh, or a watch, or uh, paintings, uh, you know, anything that, that, but most importantly, when you collect all these material, two things that you need to do. One, to show the uh, authentication. Secondly, that you have to document the chain of custody. Those two can, things. Can you, they're, they're very important. Can you, can you repeat them just so like uh, the, they are registered, um, you know, properly in the listeners? Um, um, a, Anything you have collected when you are not a lawyer and you expected this to be submitted to help a process of trustee, two things that you must document during your documentation research. One, you have to produce chain of custody. Who give it to you? Where you get it? At what time? What kind? You said chain, chain of custody of that piece of evidence or information. Yes, of information. You have to ask that person, where did you get this book? Who gave you the book? When did you get the books? Uh, you know, uh, if that person lives somewhere else, you have to look trace that person. You find like the original person who first saw the book and took the book and give to this person and later they give to you. Could that would be required by any court of law to show that the way you collected it properly, that, that, that can be traced. If the defense uh, want to challenge and want to find the original sources of the information you collect. So, so in, in, in other words, uh, but forgive me uh, for interrupting. You are saying authenticate or establish the authenticity of a piece of 
evidence or information in whatever form, a photograph, yes. a document, you know, like written notes. Yes. Yeah. So because one is authenticating the um, uh, the evidence or the information. What is the other one? Chain of custody. Chain of custody. Two of them. Right. And whenever you collect it, you know, collecting document is a political act because you collect this because you have a purpose. Right. So you have to prepare for the defense from day one, from you first start to pick that piece of paper. Quickly, you have to, do, you have to come up with the defense immediately. What if the defense said this is not, not submissible? What if the defense said this is a fake? What if the defense said that this document is fabricated? So that you have to write down. This is original. You know, this is 25 years old piece of paper. Mr. A gave this to me. He gave me this address and so forth. So that is the most important material that you have to keep it in a confidential file. For those that are what the court would need, not the information to collect. So at the same time, when you collect anything, you, you can share it with anybody around the world, but you should not share those two reports that you documented, all the information that you have collected. Those are considered, and those can be 20 page, 30 page, you know, those can be small, but this detail of how you get a piece of paper. Right. When you share what you have collected, you don't share the evidence, you share the information. Right. Information will bring you more information. The more you disseminate it, the more you reach out through your information, the more you collect it. And then you keep doing it. You compiling it. So, so it's like you, the, 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 you know, dissemination or sharing of what you know attracts further truth and facts. It, it is like a magnet and iron, uh, little iron pieces. You know, because if I mean, you, you said a metaphor. Yeah. But if you, if you uh, disseminate a voice, of a, per, of a victim that you interview. I think that not just give them the inspiration or motivation, but give them the ownership of their own history and he would be the one others. So I think that if you want to document, you must disseminate what you have documented. And that I think that itself, it creates the momentum of public uh, debate about what really is, what's going on. This, yeah, I think this is a bit counterintuitive um, in, in the uh, human rights NGO world, uh, if I'm, um, you know, brutally honest and, and critical, because, uh, you know, information becomes a, some, something of a commodity, you know, something that, uh, that can be used um, as breaking news or, you know, uh, as, as, as a basis for fundraising. Uh, or marketing one's own organization. And so there, there's a, um, some kind of like, you know, um, self-interested um, confident, confidentiality or secrecy um, yeah, yeah. that comes with this sort of work. And what you are doing is the total opposite of what a typical NGO would do. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Correct. I think that, you know, um Sometimes people, uh, you know, when they lost two million lives and when they share the story, those who suffer, 
it is human right. You know, it's, it's all about human right. But yet, you know, if you want justice for those who suffer, you have to remind yourself that you're not a court of law. But you have, I mean, sharing information publicly what we have documented itself is to is the defense of human rights. It's show the respect to human rights that they live uh, despite that they have suffered, despite they have already been executed by the regime itself. I think right. that I think that um, uh, it's been. I have seen this several places that people think that 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 uh, they act as a court of law, uh, while they are not a court of law itself. I think that is, it creates so much problem. I think that any court, any lawyer, even myself, I'm a lawyer, I would not take any file being legally underlined by other to be in my case file. It has to be independent. Otherwise, you influence by other, and that would be challenged by the defense. Basically, any information that we try to hide, to keep secret or analyze it, that would usually the court would not accept it because it can be easily challenged by the defense. And you're even prejudiced because the defense actually the one who bring a fair process to justice. And you might think that defense is not your enemy. Actually, you have to work with the defense because without the defense then would be, would be uh, it's nothing. You know, any court that you establish without a strong defense. So I think that this would be uh, difficult uh, I have met uh, a lot of NGO that that uh, in, I also used to do some work in Iraq myself. You know, when when you think that what you have it's uh, uh, it's evident, then you're wrong because you're not a court. You're wrong, and you should not run the organization like like a legal institution. You should not do that. This is this is for for humanity. This is for people. This is for your mother, your sister, your brother. You know. Uh, they don't read legal languages, you know. They don't. They don't read uh, law black book, you know. They don't do that. So that's something that uh, I've been blessed because I'm not a lawyer myself. So I don't know how to run uh, DCM as a legal institution myself. But you have to listen. You have to understand uh, enough knowledge of the law surrounding the crime that you are. Uh, seeking justice for. Uh, you have to have a sufficient knowledge of the history. And that's why, you know, I, I don't, I don't, uh, uh, I don't uh, uh, advise you on Burma. I don't know the history of Burma, for example. But I knew, I know that it's all about justice for Burmese, for Rohingya, for example. But to advise you about a history where you don't know the history, then you act as a lawyer when you're not a lawyer, that you destroy yourself. Yeah, um, can we? I think this is this is a good uh, uh, a a place to uh, to move to. Um, you know, uh, one important um, uh, topic. Um, the that is the impact of the uh, Khmer Rouge Tribunal. Um, you know, on the Cambodian society. You said like you know, justice isn't simply about for the victims or you know what happened in the past but for the future for the general you know the generations to come uh, how do you assess you know both the cost and the um, the duration of the court uh, proceedings and the number of cases that have been adjudicated 
Um, what is the overall assessment of the court and the role of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal in the Cambodian society as a whole, uh, both victims and puppet, you know, uh, perpetrators living side by side uh, the, for the reconciliation? Um, you know, how do you assess it? Because you know, court of law such as the uh, Khmer Rouge Tribunal, as you know, was established um, you know, under different geopolitical circumstances and, and uh, legal proceedings are never separated or can never be separated from the, you know, the, the uh, politics of power and geopolitics uh, internationally, whether it's Nuremberg Tribunal or Tokyo Tribunal or you know, the current uh, um, Khmer Rouge Tribunal. I mean, you know, uh, without the court, it would be difficult for me to begin the uh, education for high school, for example. Without the court, it would be difficult to, for a lot of people in Cambodia to begin uh, to put things behind and move on. I think the court is not a perfect uh, 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 the court is not going to resolve anything that genocide took place in any country in the world. But they need the court uh, because the court part of uh, part of the proceeding uh, for us to move on into the future. For that reason, you don't have to depend on court so much. But you work with the court because you court one of the processes that you need. You need to move on. You, you need to put things behind. I mean, you know, I I um, I support the court from day one. Uh, not that because I naively the court can bring. Uh, my sister back to life. But I'm using court for my own purpose so that I can teach million of Cambodian about what happened. Uh, I can use the court also to point out how can we reconcile. I can use the court to also to see whether the current situation can be better proceeding to protect the right to life, uh, you know, things like that. So I think that uh, 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 in case of Cambodia, you know, uh, Imagine had had we not have the court uh, in the last fifteen years, or I think that by now uh, you have nothing. Uh, all the leader have passed away. Uh, it's no education. You lost. You have a huge gap of society have no knowledge of their own history. Completely, even today, you know, we have ten million people who were born after the genocide, and only five or six that who were uh, suffered directly by genocide. Even even with that, we still have a difficult time uh, to even reconcile because human tend to forget things easily. You know, so court can help this proceeding uh, so that we can move to the future. I mean, the courts, uh, one thing, you know, I, I can say a lot of good thing about the court in Cambodia, but I think that also I don't I disagree with, for example, the Office of Co-Investigating Judge is a vessel time. I mean, you know, collective reparation is fake. Which you know, one? Collective reparation, for example, you know, for the victim. I mean, uh, you know, to put an exhibition, you call it reparation, things like that. I mean, I would not want an exhibition uh, to be seen as my sister compensation of what she had, what she had lost her life in the Khmer time. But <laughs> There is a there is a good thing and bad things, uh, but it's something that 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 it's a difficult lesson 
you know, and I think that only uh, we, we, we can learn only we face a difficult proceeding. And the court is very difficult, very difficult. Um, you know, uh, people would, uh, corruption took place, for example, in the eye of the perpetrator. Uh, you know, I mean, it's such a shameful act, for example. But all these things that I hope that all the difficult thing uh, in the most difficult uh, situation that I hope that can be a lesson, a lesson that that not not all six million young Cambodian, but at least you know some of them that would learn something to become someone and do better. You have to believe, you have to be optimistic. I mean, you know, you have try you have to try to make sense out of genocide. Otherwise, you remain a victim, and that is the worst thing that you want in your life to remain a victim or someone that suffer you, your family, and still walking free these days. So you have to, you know, I would say that you have to lose a little bit and win a little bit, but yet you have to reclaim your dignity, your humanity, your society, and knowing that they're still around you, still around you. And that, that would be equal to say that we have to continue to fight and we cannot stop, we cannot right. stop. If you stop, then they, they will return and they will right. harm children. They, we cannot stop. So I think that it's, uh, I would look at justice as a journey, as a journey. Uh, I think that it's a, it's, it is going to be a long journey if you don't walk together. Uh, so we have to walk together on the same journey so that it can be shorter, can be better, can be better. So that, that remains to, to be seen, see whether we agree that justice is important for any human society. Yeah, the, I think, you know, the Cambodian Khmer Rouge um, Tribunal um, has uh, issued rulings uh, pronouncing that uh, the, the regime committed both crimes against humanity and um, uh, genocide uh, over its uh, I don't know, maybe 10 years or, or longer proceedings. Um, you know, in the, we are from the region, um, Southeast Asia, 11 countries, if we count Timor-Leste, uh, 10 countries, if we go with the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, you know, ASEAN block. I had, a, um, you know, a, a specific conversation with the, uh, um, former uh, Malaysian um, uh, foreign minister, uh, Saifuddin, Saif and he's now uh, information minister. I asked him why he will want to support, um, you know, justice for uh, Rohingyas in an international court of law. And he said, we failed. We meaning like, you know, Southeast Asian countries failed to prevent or intervene to end the uh, Khmer Rouge genocide when it was, um, you know, taking place in the uh, 1970s. And so he, he said, we didn't, you know, the, uh, the ASEAN should, should not repeat the, you know, the past mistakes of letting one of the um, uh, neighbors commit such heinous crimes. Um, you know, genocides are, typically committed by um, UN member states since the um, Genocide Convention came into effect in the, you know, after the Second World War, several years after that. 
what do you say to the Southeast Asians, and particularly ASEAN leaders and officials, who shrug off when a member state such as Myanmar, you know, commits, you know, such heinous crimes, and say this is just an internal affair or humanitarian issues, and uh, we must not interfere. What is your personal or professional sentiments towards that kind of, um, you know, indifference coming from other states and nations and national leaders um, when a crime is committed in their backyard, you know, which is our region, Southeast Asia? You know, I, there is three challenges when you want, when you fight for a court of law to prosecute a genocide in the region. One is, uh, is politics, is politics, you know, and in, at the end of the day that I think you're on your own. You just cannot depend on anyone's, even your neighbor, uh, to take care of your problem. You can ask. Uh, if they say yes, you're happy. If they say no, then it should not be a surprise. Because genocide is a horrible crime. It's, 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 uh, it, was not, it was not committed by a single person. It's linked. It's linked. And seeing that we close each other, in somehow that it linked. And people are afraid of it. People are afraid of it. I mean, how, how, the, who, how, are, how is this crime linked? You know, what are the linkages you're talking about here? And this, for example, you know, in case of the Khmer Rouge, uh, there is support, uh, you know, at the Thai border, for example. There is a, is a strong support from China through a lot of ASEAN countries, for example. Those are linked, you know, and uh, that some countries even do business with the Cameroon during the Cameroon time, for example. So when this becoming international crime, and then it, it create pressure on each of them who were part of it in some way, and therefore they find all the excuse not to be participate. In case of Cambodian tribunal, Thailand was the only country who donated ten thousand dollar to the tribunal. $10,000 to the tribunal among all the 10 uh, ASEAN countries. I personally went to all the countries. But not, not so surprised because you also will face the same political challenges in Europe as well. Also in Africa, there's everywhere. And that because genocide is international crime. The genocide is a crime against humanity. So I think that uh, Cambodia have to find their own way to fight for this. I think that if you think about the call for justice in Cambodia started right away in 1979 by Gregory Stanton, it took almost 30 years to came to this far. It's a long fight, it's a long journey. So I think that uh, I, would not, uh, I would not expect or blame if the neighboring country refused to support. But I think you must keep informed them, keep them informed and educating them. And they change, you know, the foreign affair of every country they change every three years, every four years. And I think that, and you have to find different means, for example, with ASEAN, I'm hoping 
also to bring a piece of history of Cambodia to be part of all ASEAN curriculum, for example, so that the young ASEAN who grow up with a better understanding of principle of human rights perhaps can, can make a better ASEAN in the next 10 or 15 years. But you speak to all ASEAN leaders, it would be difficult. So I think also it's timing also is important. And how do you adjust the time uh, and work with everybody as much as you can? Like I said, you know, you don't need to know everything. And you don't need everyone to support the process of justice. Gambia was the only country in Africa, for example, that support. I bring the case of Burma to ICJ recently, so you need. But to keep everyone informed and to alert everyone, that's, that, is, that is our role. That is the role of a country who suffer by genocide. But I would never expect, I would never expect Thailand or Vietnam or Malaysia or Singapore uh, Hong Kong, you know, to support the ECC. But I told them, we informed them. Uh, I think that each country have different needs that you can work with. There's, there's always an uh, independent institution that not the governmental organization, for example, you can work with school, universities, um, you know, you can work with them. I mean, for, for the record, I think like, you know, since we're on the subject of, um, you know, uh, the doing business with the regime, that uh, was committing a, a genocide. For instance, like in my own country's a dictator, General Nguyen. Um, you know, the, you know this as well. At the um, um, the Killing Fields Museum, um, there was a, a, a picture of General Nguyen ha essentially having a party uh, with the um, you know Pol Pot, Nonche, Ian Sering, and you know all these like Kamaru's leaders while they were in power, you know. Uh, Thailand, as you know very well, uh, provided sanctuary for the, uh, uh, you know, the, the Pol Pot, uh, the leaders and troops um, that were uh, driven out of, of uh, Phnom Penh by Vietnamese um, and other uh, Khmer, um, you know, resistance fighters. You know, China provided massive um, uh, financial support and the United States and UK uh, also provided um, uh, political and diplomatic support so that Khmer Rouge could retain its seat at the United Nations as a true representative of Khmer people after they committed, uh, you know, uh, this uh, genocide. And so, I mean, like you're talking about like uh, uh, Singapore, Singapore was uh, also providing the public relations support and, and, and lobby uh, at the United Nations um, you know, the, through its representative, I believe at the time was Tommy Cole. And so, but, but that's, you know, I, I'm not saying these things out of ill will, uh, but it's important because uh, these are facts that, that need to be uh, recorded uh, as part of the uh, history of Cambodian genocide. You know, that, like you said, uh, the genocide was committed primarily by Khmer Rouge regime, but with the you know, um, uh, <clears throat> with the behavior that could be described as bystanding or active um, collaboration by the neighbors and larger powers. So I, I want to move to uh, the last uh, subject. Um, you have uh, envisaged this, um, you know, new institute, um, and and you had received a, 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 a you know a massive support. Uh, in the form of architectural design by this, like, you know, world famous architect, Iraqi um, architect who just uh, passed away. 
And can you tell us where the, um, you know, uh, Slough Rift Institute is, um, you know, in terms of its development that you've been trying to fundraise to, to so that you can realize this vision for School for Genocide Studies, um, you know, the, 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 uh, a, a, a very, uh, the fitting and grand um, memorial for the victims as well as for the Cambodian society. Where, where is the, uh, uh, the uh, you know, the, well, what, what is the progress on that uh, front? Well, you know, um, when, I, when I decided to return to Cambodia, I, I told my mothers, I want a tribunal. Then... Um, this so was 1990? 95. 95. 95. <clears throat> and then um, soon I began to work and develop, um, you know, um, uh, campaigned for tribunal. Then I, I told my mother again that I, I told her that we have to teach every Cambodian young people in Cambodia. So then I do the textbook. And then as I began to do the teaching since uh, 2007, uh, 2004 until now, you know we we have this uh, history for the entire country from grade nine to twelve university. We train thousands of teachers, everybody, everywhere. It's opened up for the entire Khmer history so that we can learn from death. Then I, I tell my mother, uh, my last dream would be a permanent site, a place that dedicate to the two million who have died, and a place that, that we can look uh, into the future, uh, transforming the pain uh, you know, to a better future. That's where I'm looking for uh, the most uh, female architecture in the world, which whom I have met, Zaha did, the RIP born British citizen. So um, it's been all supported by the king, the queens, the prime ministers, um, everybody in the country supported. Um, you know, we got a piece of land. Uh, very unfortunate, she passed away a couple of years ago. I mean, uh, right the now, architect. <laughs> the architect. Uh, right now, you know, because, because the idea is so huge, uh, I think that it's, it, I face a lot of challenges. I face a lot of challenges. Um, uh, so, uh, in making little progress, um, but I don't think that we would realize uh, perhaps in the next couple of years. But in the meantime, we set up a mini Silicon Institute, uh, smaller ones, uh, up and running now. But the idea, I think that art can be a source of healing. Architect can shape the way we think. Uh, you know, textbook is great, um, but not many survivors would read the book, for example. Um, uh, court is, is great, but not everyone that can be compensated. But I think the form of art, of art that it will be there that can shape the way we think and also as global uh, messages. And that's why I think that is such a place that with a, with a very um, uh, strong architecture that would really remain permanent uh, as a reminder, not only for Cambodian who are now, but those who will be born in the next generation and next generation also to the world. So I think that at the end, uh, I look at architecture as a form of healing. You know, you have justice process, you have education, 
I think not only that, that we can talk about healing and reconciliation. And we need art, we need art, we need architect, we need something that can shape the way we think. So I think that's everything here and there. Um, it's all positive, but it's smaller because the project is such a big project. And that would be uh, my last obligation uh, as someone who suffered by the Khmer Rouge to the country itself. Uh, after that, I would do something else, to be honestly. But I think yeah, well, go go retire in Siem Rip and uh, you know read and and write. Um, I, I want to go. I want to do until the end. I want. I want to go all the way. That whenever that I still have the ability and uh, minds and resource to do, I want to use all everything that I have just for the cause of justice. And that would be uh, for me. That would be. Something that I, I I hope that my mother would be proud of me. Uh, I want to I want to return a little bit to your comments on, on ASEAN because I think that's important also to record. You know, I mean, um, not many people like the UN, and Cambodia have no choice but we have to go to the UN. UN support the Khmer Rouge at one point. Um, I mean, did yeah. you say UN supported Khmer Rouge and? And, you know, support the seat uh, holding uh, the, the Khmer Rouge at the UN for 10 years. After uh, the genocide. After the genocide. But I think sometimes uh, you have to face your opponents and uh, look at institutions that I think that they have reformed in the last five terms, for example. Uh, you look at the US, US was the only and the first country who uh, enact their own law to bring a process of genocide justice in Cambodia, for example. So I think that sometimes um, we have to see which ones belong to the textbook, to the history book, and someone is still applicable to the legal proceeding. And that came to my uh, previous statement that sometimes you have to lose a little bit and to win a little bit. And there's no absolute justice anyhow. Uh, Mike, again, to the selected institution, I think that's something that, that remains, uh, remain um, uh, a core, remain an institution who, based on uh, justice approach, that, but yet, you know, you have to, uh, to believe in the futures, that the future can be better. Uh, you have to be optimistic. I mean, otherwise, when after genocide, after so much uh, suffering, then uh, you don't train yourself to be optimistic about the future. That would be difficult. So um, the Selected Institutes, it's like I said, it's uh, it's it's uh, it, it contributes to the healing of the entire nation through art. Well, I I I wish you a uh, very best of luck in in that uh, very worthy endeavor, and uh, you know obviously. Uh, you know that I, I will be more than happy to um, contribute in any way uh, I can to um, make your uh, dr dream come true. And also, um, I want to take this opportunity to thank you, uh, uh, you know, uh, the publicly uh, for your um, unfailing support to the Burmese um, anti-racist, anti-genocide um, scholars and activists uh, that, you know, you have provided us um, a welcome home and a launching pad for genocide um, sensitive 
sensitivity training that uh, I was running uh, for a number of years through DC CAM. And uh, I think you know, the, uh, the, your work has contributed not just simply to the Cambodian society, but to the uh, anti-racist, uh, anti-genocide uh, Burmese uh, movement, however small and uh, ineffectual we may be. Uh, so I, I thank you for that. Um, do you have any um, uh, final passing thoughts uh, before um, we uh, bring this conversation to an end? You know why I I am so close to Burma because it's uh, it's you know I think it's it's because we have so much beneath. Perhaps ethnically we are related, uh, religiously we are sort of similar. You know and. Uh, so I, 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 I just love, love Burmese, to be honest. <laughs> I love love and I hope that Burmese uh, will do better. And, uh, you know, I, I wish so much that I, I can do more. Uh, but at least, you know, there's a place to call home. Uh, there's always food for you. There's always office for you. There's always things that you can enjoy. There's at least I can do for my Burmese friends and everybody. So I wish you all uh, the best of luck, and I hope that justice will prevail uh, for all the women who suffer, particularly the Rohingya peoples in, in Burma. I think that's so unfair, uh, and I hope that um, should stand up, should up and fight for it, and demands justice. Uh, and I will do whatever I can to support from here. Yeah. Thank you so much for your very candid and uh, honest um, and insightful conversation. And uh, um, so we'll, we'll, we'll meet again after the lockdown and, and um, you know, we'll, we'll go to Siem Rip together again. Thanks That's again, right. brother. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye.